I'm Rosie Matteo, and welcome to From Pot to Popular, a new podcast where we interview the media, marketers, and moguls who are mainstreaming cannabis. Welcome to today's episode of Pot to Popular. I'm your host, Rosie Matteo. Today, we're joined by Dan Mueller, founder and CEO of AeroPay. AeroPay is solving one of the industry's toughest problems, which is cash management. In an industry where we do not have access to traditional banking or credit cards, taking payments at a dispensary is really one of the biggest hurdles that these companies face. Dan is going to join us today and talk about his solution and what AeroPay is doing to propel the industry forward. Welcome, Dan. Hey, Rosie. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to have you here because you guys are solving one of the industry's biggest problems. So let's just take a little bit of background. So Dan, you and AeroPay have a unique background that began outside of cannabis. You know, a lot of the solutions are built within cannabis, but you guys have um, interesting stories. So I'd love you to take a moment and give our listeners an overview of your background and just how AeroPay came to be. Sure. Yeah. So the story, like you said, is that we started outside of cannabis. My background's in product and engineering for large uh, retail-based solutions. So I worked for a company that built solutions for like Adidas, Foot Locker, Best Buy, Express, and many others. Eventually, we got into fintech and financial services, building wallets and payment services for banks. And eventually, that company sold to a bank. And a lot of the technology that we were building was around payments and credit card rails. Um, and so AeroPay was really born out of the idea of kind of going around those standard rails and then, you know, designed to serve underserved areas, verticals and communities. Um, and so when we founded the company in Chicago, we were going door to door to local businesses, allowing customers to pay uh, those businesses with a simple bank transfer to really get around the heavy fees that those stores would pay when accepting credit cards. And so that sort of took off quite a bit. We had a few hundred stores locally in Chicago, and then we realized, hey, there's a lot of underserved verticals that either suffer from credit card fees, very high, or no credit card services at all, like cannabis. And so we designed to go to market in cannabis by finding the right bank partners, making sure we had regulatory oversight and approval in the cannabis market. And we extended our technology solution to cover any type of payment. So not just in-store, but online, API-based integrations. And then so all of that historical engineering experience, products, go-to-market, underserved communities, sort of bubbled up into our entry into cannabis, which has been really healthy for the business um, and exciting to see grow. And, and we look forward to kind of continuing to serve the market. Yeah. And so, you know, because, you know, you did start this outside of cannabis and you built the platform and, you know, in the tech stack and, you know, you just mentioned some of the regulations. So did you have to modify the platform to meet, you know, the very intricate compliance operational requirements for a cannabis company? Talk a little bit about how you have to make some changes since it is sort of unique what we do here. Yeah, definitely. So we know that credit cards aren't really an option. And we know that, you know, the issuing banks, sponsor banks, the networks, they aren't comfortable with the federal status. So we need to make sure that our bank partners, the ones that we work with, are already providing financial services to the cannabis industry. And that's really what we found is the best fit. 
right? If you're a regional bank or a credit union, you're banking the space, providing payroll, well, you're pretty close to providing services for fintechs in the space. And you're also following the regulatory playbook in order to provide services to the industry. So we made that partnership. We made sure that we presented directly to regulators. And it was a lot more work, frankly, to do it. But, you know, it's it's been worth it. And, you know, we we're confident that we stand kind of on our own with our compliance first model. You know, historically, you've probably seen so many payment methods come and go, create quick workarounds that are designed to serve the industry, and then they disappear. We're really here to be a long-term partner and solution. Right. And some of the problems that we've seen is, you know, the end of last year, like these issued warning about the misuse of cashless ATMs, you know, which yeah. has been sort of like a prevalent practice among cannabis retailers, right? Because like it is like one of these workarounds. So what point, like, how does their pay platform differ from the cash ATMs? And like, why should cannabis companies actually take Visa's warning pretty seriously? Like, what could that mean? Like, what is the risk towards, you know, for cannabis companies? Yeah, I mean, I think the risk constantly is that the payment provider or the operator could get shut down for violating those rules or, you know, the regulatory environment or the state could take action or create fines. The financial regulators, not necessarily the cannabis regulators, could take action. And so our model is that we enable a simple bank-to-bank transfer through the ACH network that's backed by a financial institution that's already working in the space. So simple in theory, but hard in practice because of the compliance model that you need to do to follow all the rules to, you know, bank or run payments in the space. Very different than a cashless ATM model that's A, not transparent about the type of transaction that's happening, right? So mimicking an ATM withdrawal and then B, running through Visa and MasterCard rails, which we know, you know, is not preferred by those networks because of the federal status. And so, you know, our approach is dramatically different. It's a cannabis transaction. That's what's going to appear on the bank statement. The operator knows, we know, the consumer knows. And then it's really designed to keep costs really low. Now, operators can enable online payments, buy online and store pickup, delivery payments, prepayments. So a much different user experience that's compliance first. And, you know, there's no roundup like in the cashless ATM or kind of, work around uh, experience that everybody has to feel. Even as an experience, you know, kind of a shoppers and works in industry, even like our billing company, when I was traveling to uh, you know, one of our clients' dispensaries and I bought some stuff, they're like, what is this weird ATM transaction like yeah. for $78? And I was like, what's you got $78? How is that possible? I'm like, oh, it must have been when I was in that store and, and bought something. I even get tricked up. It is very, you know, opaque. So I think having that clarity, just even just as like a normal consumer is like so important. You guys have made it like pretty simple and there are like countless and security operational incentives for cannabis retailers to adopt one of your solutions, but some haven't made the switch yet. So from your perspective, like what are the main reasons Spencer just haven't made this priority? And how do you guys address that issue, really sharing like the value proposition and moving on to, you know, the AeroPay platform? Yeah, I think, you know, some of it's just being burned historically, right? You have people that come and go and then they may disappear and, you know, there's there's a little bit of scar tissue that you have to wade through and then on the complete other side, you know, there's the idea that cash is free and we know cash is very much not free and very expensive to manage and deal with, but processing fees are new, right? The idea that now I have to pay to accept funds digitally is a pretty new concept in cannabis where it's pretty common outside. 
you know, our counter to that is it's a very small fee compared to the much higher basket size that you'd retain from being able right. to buy out of the entire bank account versus what's in your wallet, right? Think about you open your wallet, you have the cashier, the ATM limit, even cashless ATM, there's a limit on how much you can quote unquote take out, right? But you're not really taking out, you're swiping your card. With an ACH solution, you can pay you know, as much as you can pay based on the state limits out of your bank account. So it drives up basket sizes quite a bit up to 30 to 40% higher. And therefore the actual processing fee is minuscule comparatively to the business benefit of turning something like that on. So it's just education, right? Like saying, Hey, we're going to be around for a while. You know, this is better for you as a business and, you know, we're your long-term partner. I think that's that's really what you know has been successful for us and what we're going to keep talking about. Yeah, and talking about you know actually uh, partners, you guys have accelerated um, your integration at, um, efforts through this year through partnerships with Jane and FlowHub and Ola, and also potentially some mainstream fintech platforms. So, what kind of retail experiences and operational efficiencies are you guys trying to create through this growing payment ecosystem? You know, what is that vision? The vision is to fit into the retailer and operator's ecosystem without forcing them into the one that we want them to, right? So too much in too many times in the industry, um, especially new ones, you have the opportunity for the industry to be taken advantage of for large scale business interests. We want to take the complete opposite approach, right? We're there to provide a service to the client. We want to fit into their ecosystem. The way you do that is developing relationships and partnerships with the stack that they currently have. And that's really been the go-to-market strategy, but it's also been what the clients have wanted, right? You want your domain expert to be the best at what they do in that area. You want to be able to negotiate commercials with the domain expert, and you want to be able to have them work together efficiently and collaboratively. And so that's that's really been part of our main strategy in cannabis. It's worked quite well. It's one we're going to take long term. And I think you're, you know, you're going to see additional competitiveness versus that mentality. And, you know, I think it's it's still a question on what will win out long term, but we believe the operators are going to start to get very savvy about the technology they buy and they're not going to be, you know, held hostage based on the solution that they choose. Right. So just, you know, trying to push this uh, narrative of like having an open architecture. Right. Yeah. And like, so why do you think it's actually pertinent to cannabis retailers now? Like, do you think if, if they make the like trying to set themselves up like early with this, like with like their systems or like like how should it cannabis companies think about setting up like their tech stack when there are so many different solutions? What we've seen lately, which we really like, is really sophisticated procurement and buying processes that exist in you know large-scale retail environments, right? So every time we would bid my previous company for you know a digital solution, we'd go through a deep RFP process, and you know there would be lots of comparisons, there would be lots of parties making decisions, which yeah can extend the sale, but at least it really serves as a way to satisfy each and every stakeholders decision, right? And I think in cannabis, you really have two types of buyers, one that's getting very sophisticated, the other that's, you know, got a million things going on and and may want to make a quick decision, which is good. But at the same time, they may not think about like the long-term effects of what's going on. And so even though it might slow down the sale, I think it's, 
it's really smart to be careful and deliberate, deliberate about the decision that's being made. And we're starting to see that happen, which is great because, you know, compliance is a factor, security is a factor. People are asking about SOC 2 now where they weren't a year ago. And so you have to do some of the fundamentals really well. And, you know, even the really big players sometimes don't. And so that's something that like the MSOs will want to see long term. Yeah. And and talking about long term, you know, we're looking at what the futures industry looks like. Right. And considering how Safe Banking Act passed for the sixth time in February and federal lawmakers are doubling down on hopefully passing meaningful cannabis reform this year. Talk about how will AeroPlease platforms support cannabis businesses once they can easily once they can easily access mainstream banking and financial services? Like, how does AeroPay you know evolve with the industry, or actually, how does it help the industry move forward to this you know future where financial services are open to us? Yeah, I, th- I think anything will take time, right? So safe safe banking will allow for entry for more FIs to embrace the idea of, of following the very strict guidelines to bank the industry. And, you know, we've seen that that may not mean full payment processing. And if that is the case, there's still going to be, you know, heavy fees associated to the quote unquote high risk. Like we don't even talk about high risk anymore because to us, it's not high risk. It's just unknown, right? And they see the unknown and they charge more fees associated to the idea that it's- don't think about that. They think, Sage, all these things are going to pass. And then like, we're still going to get the cannabis tax probably, right? Yeah, like, 100%. You have us now, we're going to charge for it, right? Yeah, you're going to charge for it. And it's an, it's an opportunistic outlook. You know, it's going to be deemed high risk and then there's going to be more fees associated to it. And the more time it takes, the better we're going to get at measuring the risk. Our, you know, and our commercials are going to stay very competitive comparatively. And we designed AeroPay to sit alongside all incumbent payment methods long term. So we want to see change. It'll be better for everybody. More banks um, will be able to provide services to this space. We're actually end up we end up being a conduit to finding banking services for many of the clients that we work with because we know who's out there doing it correctly. Um, And I think that's the biggest unknown and myth currently is that there are safe banks out there um, in almost every Medinrec state. And so if we can be helpful while, you know, things still get figured out on the Hill, then we will. And if they do get figured out, well, that's great too, but everything's going to take a lot of time. So in the absence of that, you know, you need private innovation to, to definitely help. Absolutely. And I want to shift gears a little bit because, you know, you've been working, you know, at, I would say startups, you know, for a while and, um, you know, you're a lifelong entrepreneur. So who would you say has been the most valuable mentor through your founder journey? And also what advice would you give to newer entrepreneurs who are trying to find their support network in this space? You know, it's a, you're like, it's a startup mentality within a startup industry. So I'd love to understand like, you know, some of your mentorship that's brought you here and some advice you can give to a lot of would-be entrepreneurs who tune into the show. Yeah, awesome question. And, you know, I, I, uh, I'm excited to say that my mentors are, you know, as, the people as close to me as possible, right? So my family, specifically my parents and, and my older brother and sister were all entrepreneurs. My family's from Latin America, moved to the U.S. to create businesses. Mom, you know, founded her own firm. My father was working in the sports industry for many, many years. And so I've been around entrepreneurship all my life. So it was sort of a rite of passage to do it. And uh, it's been a really exciting journey so far. And, and it's nice to be able to have that type of sounding board as this company grows and scales. 
And advice really to any kind of new entrepreneurs is to find other entrepreneurs that maybe are slight, slightly ahead, right? Uh, you know, I probably didn't use this enough getting into it, but, you know, a year, six months ahead or so, find those folks, reach out on LinkedIn, find mutual connections. You'll find that most entrepreneurs really want to help breed other ones and see other ones not make the same mistakes they did, which I can definitely live by. So, you know, reach out, have a chat with them, understand their journey, and you'll find that almost always they're interested in making introductions that will be helpful to your business if you're open to it. And um, the other thing, too, is to not always see it one way. The journey is always going to change and be open to the feedback from the people that have been through and not necessarily the, the people that are advising you or investing you, but the people that have also actually done the job. And sometimes those are investors and, and that's when, you know, the best kind of all comes together, but that's my advice and, and what I would do differently if I did it again. I love it. I, I think, I mean, I'm a firm believer of the cliche that your net worth is your network, right? And yeah. uh, the way to like, uh, you know, really succeed in business as a startup founder is, you know, lean into those other founders who have might be different industry, but, you know, the entrepreneur uh, journey is um, is pretty unique. And we share a lot of the, you know, like you said, no one wants to see somebody make the same mistake they did because it's painful, right? So yeah. I, I, I love that advice. And just, you know, as a, as a wrap up, so, you know, we talked about a lot of things. What are you most looking forward to in Canvas for the second half of the year? We're talking in August now. You know, there's has been some, you know, talk in Washington. We're coming in on earnings. What are you looking forward to in Canvas? The evolution of technology in the space is happening at a pace that no one's ever seen before, you know, and that's relevant to us. It's relevant to, you know, other, our partners, our competitors. And I think you're going to start to see very large scale players interested in participating. And that might be through partners, it might be through themselves, but there is this understanding now that this business is here to stay, it's sophisticated, and we're going to see the advancement of technology and, you know, the bridge between the incumbents and, you know, the folks that are in the space now. And that's it. eventually, I think, inevitable and everyone knew that, but I think it's going to happen at a pace that no one expected. Um, and so we're really excited to be working on a few projects that, you know, allow for that. And we're excited to announce later this year. I'm excited to help you guys announce it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. for joining a thing. I was saying we started at the top of this. There's nothing I love more than seeing, you know, our clients in the wild going to centuries and seeing people using the platform. So thanks so much for joining us today and looking forward to hearing what's to come in 22. Yeah, awesome for having me. Thank you so much. And uh, look forward to chatting again.